In a world where people cheer for superheroes like the Fantastic Four, the Avengers, and Spider-Man, those same people will inexplicably hate the X-Men. Get out of my bar, freak. Because for some reason there's a difference between superpowers and mutant powers. I guess. Suit up for director Brian Singer's first two X-Men films that proved comic book movies can be awesome. And director Brett Ratner's The Last Stand that proved comic book movies can totally suck balls. Ugh. Recoil as the spoiled hack douchebag takes the reins of the beloved franchise only to kill off your favorite characters, leave out your favorite characters, and depower your favorite characters. I had to. All while completely butchering the Phoenix Saga, a storyline so iconic, even the cartoon did it justice. Scott, please, do it. I can't. But don't worry, they're sending Wolverine back in time to make sure Brett Ratner never happened. Hey there, and welcome to the Funny Books and Firewater podcast. This is episode 6, where we're discussing the uncanny X-Men's The Dark Phoenix Saga, from back in good old 1980, a year before many of us were born, at least. Written by Chris Claremont and illustrated by John Byrne, we have three very, very rabid X-Men fans on the show this week. I swear to you, Todd and I are actually on this episode, however, we pretty much had nothing to add or could not get a word in anyway. However, great conversation, good interesting stuff, I hope you all really enjoy it. Uh, Once again, as always, if you like what you hear, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, um, and also on our website. Also on our blog, we've been posting uh, recipes to go along with the drinks, so if you want to check in with us on Friday afternoon. To get your weekend started, we should have some cocktail suggestions for you with our upcoming book. So now I'll leave it to the gang uh, with this week's episode of the Funny Books and Firewater podcast. We have a full compliment with us today, starting on the East Coast once again in time zone uh, order. We have Q. Yes, hi. Um, you guys always have like these super long things to say at this point. Like you like talk about all the things you're doing, and I'm like. Hey, what's up? I'm drinking today, so <laughs> yay. And then moving on to the central time zone in Austin, Texas, we have Andy. Hi, I'm Andy. I'm on the Board is Hell podcast and write for Big Shiny Robot. And uh, yeah, coming here from Austin, the uh, sane part of Texas. It, that should be there on their uh, billboards right there. It's like Austin, the sane part of Texas. It should be. Yeah. Although I did watch an episode of Bar Rescue with a bar in Texas that looked completely and utterly insane, I will say that. Uh, we have lots of bars, and they get used. We're, we're a heavy drinking city. There is nothing wrong with that. <laughs> so, uh, also about Austin, um, a bunch of my friends just got back from the um, Austin International Drag Festival and fucking loved it there. So, congratulations, Andy. You live in a great town. We try. <laughs> Shantae, you stay. Okay, well then uh, you can also hear the voice of Adam, also from the Board as Hell podcast. Yep, I've uh, been doing that, and then also doing movie reviews and all kinds of fun stuff for Big Shiny Robot. So, uh, or I think Andy and I are both on a high this week because we just went and saw Civil War. So, again, well, not, not discussion for right now, but I think we're both pretty excited still. <laughs> That's fantastic. I am uh, still on a crazy work schedule and have unfortunately not been able to see that movie, and I'm still depressed by that full fact. I saw it. It was amazing. Okay, bye. <laughs> I'm gonna make you jealous. I'm gonna go see uh, Apocalypse on Monday. Yep, me too. You shut your whore mouth. Whores. 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 And then, of course, we have the lovely and talented Todd, also from the uh, Mountain West time zone. Hi, Todd here. I'm also drinking. 
Yeah, we haven't got to that yet. We'll, we'll, we'll get into that. And uh, I am uh, Brian from uh, Southern California. Uh, so, yeah, this week we are talking the Phoenix Saga. Now, I read the Dark Phoenix Saga, and I just realized we did not specify if we're going to do the full Phoenix Saga or the Dark Phoenix Saga. I read Dark Phoenix. Did everybody else read Dark Phoenix? Dark Phoenix, yeah. 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 Dark Phoenix. Yes. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> I was a little afraid we weren't all going to be on the same page and half of us would be talking about the first half of the story and half of us would be talking about the second half of the story and then it would be kind of a mess. And I didn't realize that until some internet research yesterday, but luckily it sounds like we're okay. Uh, Starting out as we do every week, we're going to start with drinks. Um, We will start uh, with, we'll say Q, what are you drinking this week? Alright, so I have a lot to say for this. Uh, First of all, I'm just drinking um, some leftovers from my birthday party a few weeks ago. So, you know, people just, like, leave beer at your house. So I'm currently drinking some Not Your Father's root beer, which is delicious. If you haven't tried it, I think you should. Oh, you know what you need to do with that? Huh? Take, take a bottle of Not Your Father's root beer, put in a shot of horchata. It's amazing. Oh, it tastes like a root beer float. Okay. I might, really I might do that later. So I have another bottle. Um, however, I did do some research and come up with some of my own um, X-Men cocktails for this week. Okay. Uh, so, um, so four of the, uh, well, three of the people introduced in this arc, as well as the one that it's about, Jean Grey, all have amazing cocktails. So I wanted to uh, talk about them. So the first one is the Phoenix edition of the Jean Grey cocktail. So uh, it's some um, 151 white rum, green chartreuse, which I've never heard of, but I'm extremely excited to taste this cocktail. Um, Midori, vodka, peach schnapps, and grenadine. So the first part is you blend the peach schnapps and the grenadine with some ice and put that on the bottom for a little slushy flavor. And then you uh, put the vodka, Midori, and green chartreuse and float that on top of it. So you have like a red at the bottom, green in the middle. You put some 151 on top and light that shit on fire. This sounds so amazing. I completely want to go try this drink. So um, I might I might have to review that next time. Um, I would love to hear how that goes. Yeah. I, first of all, let's just light that shit on fire. Sounds yeah. amazing. Now remember um, that you have to not drink enough so that you forget how to review it. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Because no um, I'm hoping that it will at least destroy a galaxy in my brain. Um, <laughs> The, the next one is Dazzler, who gets introduced in this arc, and this is the one that I came up with, so it might taste like complete shit, but I'm I'm down for it. So I call it the Dazzler, some orange juice, champagne, and blue curacao, and then rim your, your glass with Pop Rocks. They're always about the rim, right? Yeah, um, obviously. And, um... Well, have you had one? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I don't want to know that. Um, but yeah, so I, I think that sounds really good. Um, another uh, Kitty Pride also introduced. In it's the, a mimosa, basically, is what you're yeah, having. Well, it's like a mimosa with just like a, a, a little twist. Uh, you know, just some some blue on top with some pop rock. No, that sounds good actually. I don't I don't think it's gonna be as bad as you think. Um, so the next one is the Emma Frost. Uh, vanilla vodka, Sprite, a little key lime juice, and um, garnish with a lemon. This is I found this on the um, Comics Alliance Pinterest. It sounded sounded pretty delicious. And apparently it can come with the sidecar of SoCo and Cranberry as Scott Summers on the side, <laughs> which I, I thought was uh, pretty cute. That's funny. That's very you know, funny. Just a little Scott Summers on the side. Why not? Um, and then the last but not least, Kitty Pride. Um, she's... 
uh, also introduced in this arc. She hasn't quite taken the name yet, but I thought just some Sprite and some Skittles in it, because it's still a virgin drink. Just throw some Skittles and some Sprite, because, you know, she has terrible fashion sense throughout her entire superhero career. So just all of the colors thrown into a glass of Sprite. Have that. You love Kitty Pride, yet you critique her fashion sense. How can you love Kitty Pride? Oh, absolutely. Here's the thing. If I don't critique you enough, it means I don't love you enough. So I love Kitty Pride. I really do. I am a, a huge Kitty Pride supporter. But Gorilla, like, you've got some terrible, terrible fashion sense, especially when she was younger. But, I mean, this goes up into, like, the like the 2000s when she had that terrible, like, hip cutouts in the Extreme X-Men arc. Like, that was awful. And then she just goes to, like, an X-Men training uniform. Like, girl, come on. Like, at least, at least have something a little original and fun. But... Once again, watch yourself, because maybe she should just ask Wasp to, like, make her one, since she obviously can't be trusted to make her own. Okay. I mean, have you seen the roller skate one with, like, the gold tights and the leg warmers and... Girl, nah. Girl, nah. Uh, Both uh, both Kitty Pride and Dazzler have made a lot of very questionable fashion choices throughout the years. Which is true. Like, I'm not a huge fan of Dazzler's current look with um, on the A-Force. Uh, apparently it was debuted, debuted fairly recently in an X-Men arc where she was, like, brainwashed or something. I don't really know. So he had black, black hair. Wasn't a huge fan. Um, I, of course, love her classic, like, uh, 80s ensembles with just the blue and the yellow starburst in the middle. That works. Yeah, um, that's that's what I cosplayed uh, a few years ago. Uh, not a single damn person knew who I was, uh, but that's all right. Uh, I'm just having orange soda because, uh, yeah, not a drinker. But uh, since uh, there is a lot of Colossus in here, um, go ahead and make yourself a Moscow Mule while you're at it. There you go. I hadn't thought about that, but that's actually a good one. I should have stolen that. Uh, let's see, Todd. What are you drinking? I'm having the Jean Grey Goose Martini. Ooh, okay. Yeah, it's got Grey Goose vodka, um, equal parts Goldschlager with vermouth and orange bitters. That sounds fantastic. So yeah, it really does. It's really good. It's actually it's really good. So a little bit of that cinnamon, spice it up for the Phoenix portion of it all, and. I've had my second one now, and we'll see how it goes. Oh my god, I want that on my face. <laughs> yeah, cool. that's what uh, I'm drinking. We've got vodka and Goldschlager. We've got cocktail heavy today. This is awesome. Uh, Adam, what are you drinking? So uh, I've done a lot of mixology stuff in my whole life, um, and some drinks that I've invented uh, were actually real drinks I didn't know about. Uh, so this is one I came up with god way back a long time ago, um, and actually called it a Phoenix because I was trying to make it in x-men themed drink because yeah we're, we're all geeks here uh it's actually the, the real name for it if you actually want to order it at a bar is called a sunburn uh it's very simple to make it's essentially just a screwdriver so vodka and orange juice and you add a splash of grenadine and stir it so it kind of gets more of like a fiery orangish color um just be careful with this though because it is kind of sugary so if you have too many of them i guarantee you, you will not feel well the next day so it's, that's also kind of like a tequila sunrise just with vodka instead of tequila. Pretty much, yeah. It's, I mean, there's so many different, like, I'm sure you can do it with gin. I'm sure you can do it with all kinds of different alcohols. Um, but, yeah, essentially, it's a very common drink, but it looked kind of fiery and red, so I called it a phoenix. <laughs> um, and I actually, I went and made my favorite drink that I've ever had in a bar. I attempted to make it, and I successfully 
was a bartender today and actually made myself a really good drink. Um, what I'm drinking is a Corp Survivor number two. Uh, the Corp Survivors are a very old family of drinks that were considered hair of the dog kind of recipes, sort of on the lines of your uh, Bloody Marys or uh, whatever hangover cures. Um, but number two is kind of considered to be the best tasting. It is one ounce of gin, one ounce of uh, Cointreau or Cointreau or however you pronounce it because I can't say it. Uh, one ounce of Lilit Blanc, which is a aperitif if you're looking for it in the liquor store. Uh, one ounce of fresh lemon juice and a dash of absinthe. And I will warn you, you can go a little bit heavy on the absinthe and it will give you a little more of a uh, black licorice flavor. Put some ice in it, put it in a shaker, shake it all up, and pour it out. It's actually incredibly tasty, and it is one of my favorite things that I've ever had. I uh, had a birthday a few years ago where our good friend uh, Christopher took me to uh, what is now one of my favorite bars, and I drank a few too many of those, and uh, I realized that uh, absinthe can lead to a very strange hangover. Um, but yeah, it was very, very tasty. So we will jump in. We are talking about the uh, Uncanny X-Men's uh, Dark Phoenix Saga which of course Q being our resident uh, X-Men expert will probably, do you want to uh, do you want to give us an introduction to it, Q? Dark Phoenix is uh, one of probably the most famous X-Men stories. It probably is what many consider to be Chris Claremont's cl- crowning achievement um, in writing, also drawn by John Byrne, which uh, also just amazing stuff. Um, also kind of at his height uh, with the X-Men. Um, so basically, uh, about 20, 29, what, uh, this one starts with like 128 issues earlier, um, in 100, 101 of Uncanny X-Men, Gene uh, sort of gains the power of the Phoenix. We find out later that mm, there was some other kind of stuff going on, uh, but she she emerges from this space mission that they have from a crash shuttle with these enhanced powers, which... Uh, which, and she calls herself the Phoenix. Also during this time, uh, Mastermind has sort of reared his ugly head from his old days of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, the original, and uh, is really starting to play mind games with Gene. Um, he is working with the Hellfire Club, which uh, they are introduced in this arc. Um, they're kind of like a, a growing subplot, which is a, a Claremont kind of staple, is like the one little thing that happens, and you're like, oh, what the hell was that? And it just sort of builds until until the reveal. And uh, they're trying to gain control of Jean Grey to join the, uh, to join the Hellfire Club, uh, which, um, you know, little do they know that Jean's sort of mental stability isn't all there because of all of these Phoenix powers. And when... Uh, Mastermind sort of unlocks the negative side of her personality. It really, you know, throws the cosmos really into into a, a, a tizzy. Um, probably one of the greatest uh, foes that they've ever had to face because they're she's also their friend and they don't really want to hurt her. Um, as far as the uh, like plot goes, there's some uh, or not really plot. Uh, as far as like some some great moments. There's the uh, kind of solo Wolverine uh, takedown of the Hellfire Club, which is kind of awesome. That uh, image of him coming out of the sewer is one that has been reused multiple times. Um, there's uh, just the there's also the introduction of once again three of my favorite characters: Dazzler, Kitty Pride, and Emma Frost. Um, 
the, so in my opinion, one of the infamous uh, mountaintop sex scene with Gene uh, Gray and Scott Summers, and uh, and also the sort of iconic moon base fight between uh, the X Men and the Shi'ar Empire, the Imperial Guard, which is really cool. If for people who may not want to sit down and, and read this, I highly suggest then watching the animated series from the '90s because it's all, almost panel for panel. They do substitute some characters out because of the people who were more popular on the 90s cartoon, um, but it's almost panel for panel um, adaptation of this story, and I think they, they did a, a really good job um, in, the, in the animated show. Um, I'll throw it out back to you guys if you guys have anything else to add. I, I just love this. This is you know, Claremont-era X-Men was what got me into comics in the 80s, and and that's what I read, and that's what I was always drawn to. So um, I went back to the Phoenix Saga and then the Dark Phoenix Saga pretty early. At the time, they were uh, they were reprinting the old X-Men under the imprint of classic X-Men, and they were just redoing like one every two weeks, one a month, or something. So like I, it was almost like I read the Phoenix Saga in order um, because it was coming out every month, which was a kind of a cool experience now that I that I think back on it. Um, but this is like my all-time favorite lineup of X-Men. Uh, you've got Nightcrawler, you've got Colossus, you've got Wolverine, you've got Storm. Um, I don't care for Cyclops, whatever, but Jean Grey and, uh, and as the Phoenix is awesome. And so I guess you need to have Cyclops there, whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, I love this. And um, there's some, I, I wanna talk about some other kind of random stuff in this that uh, relates to like later X-Men uh, a little later. Um, but like Kitty Pride and whatever's going on with her and Colossus early on. And uh, talk about Joss Whedon's run on Astonishing X-Men. Um, but yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm just going to piggyback right there. Like the very first scene between Kitty and um, and Emma Frost also like uh, Whedon harkens back to like one of the first things Emma Frost says to Kitty Pride is, and we're just going to become the best of friends. And so once again, rereading it today, you know, with, you know, astonishing more closely in my mind, it was like, Haha, that's funny because obviously they hate each other. I know. And it's so good. <laughs> See, for me, this is almost like, this is almost like holy scripture. Um, I, uh, when I was a kid, my parents wouldn't really let me read too much, like, serious comics because they thought it was too, you know, too serious for an eight-year-old to get into. Um, but I did watch the X-Men cartoon religiously. I loved the whole Phoenix story and everything else. Uh, and then when I was in college, there was a comic shop down the street from where I, from my apartment. And that's when this guy's like, oh, you you read the Dark Phoenix saga, right? And I was like, no, I've seen the cartoon thing. He's like, oh, no, no, you, you need to read this. So um, I picked it up there, and that's what got me back into you know, reading comics as much as I, I was as a kid, and then going back and picking up on all the stuff I didn't read when I was younger. Um, I read through my trade so many times, I wore out, and I had to get a new one. And thankfully, I was able to pick up the... Uh, the 30th anniversary edition. It's really cool. It's out of print now, um, but it's a nice hardcover. Um, but yeah, this is Phoenix has become my favorite character pretty much in the Marvel universe. Uh, definitely X Men kind of fights it out with Cap for favorite in the whole Marvel thing. Um, but yeah, this this was the first time I read a comic and actually 
was impacted and moved by it. Um, yeah, I mean, so much so, I've got, a, I've got a phoenix tattoo on my leg, so if you've seen me before, I've got the big firebird, that was the, my first tattoo, so, um, yeah, this is this is kind of my starting point, my springboard into everything else I've ever read from comics since then, since I'd say 1999, so, uh, this, this kicked everything off. Yeah, this was really emotional, I mean, I can't think of many other places where, in comics, there has been a, a character death or a character arc that has meant so much. I mean, Jean Grey here has like cosmic uh, consequences for what she's doing and then very personal consequences. And it's heartbreaking uh, to see the X-Men trying to deal with this and they're like, what do we do? Uh, it's like she's a ticking time bomb and we want to protect her, but we also know that like she can she can really fuck some shit up. It's like destroy all of the celery people. Which, by the way, I did try to think of some kind of cocktail that involves celery as a garnish for her, but I thought the Bloody Mary kind of tomato juice was just too too easy, but those poor celery people. Well, I thought it was kind of funny, because obviously the, the cartoon in the 90s was more geared towards kids, uh, but they, they made a point in the, uh, in the cartoon to explain, like, oh, no, 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 like, that... Thankfully, that whole solar system was uninhabited, so no one died. Uh, no, bitch. She killed five billion beans. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, jeez. Oh, honey. I'd worked with a director who did the uh, 80s TV series of G.I. Joe, and uh, he was telling me that in every episode, even if they had a plane explode, they had to show somewhere a parachute that, like, no one died in G.I. Joe, even though it was a war cartoon. No one never died. There was always a parachute. Someone always escaped. Everybody was always okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, even in the in the, in the cartoon, you know, she she dies and comes back. But um, obviously, in the comic, her her death was impactful because uh, you know, if he, well, I won't say exactly how she got out of it, but uh, they uh, I can't remember who was ahead of Marvel at the time that said that Jean Grey could never come back to life because they were always bringing characters back like they always do, um, unless she was proven to be innocent of her crimes of killing five billion people. So for a while there, she was supposed to stay dead forever, kind of like the Harry Osborn or your Gwen Stacy back from, you know, well, before Gwen Stacy came back, Spider-Gwen. Um, or Bucky. <laughs> or Bucky, yeah. God damn it, no one stays dead anymore. <laughs> no one stays dead anymore. Oh, I, think, I think Harry Osborn's still dead, isn't he? I don't think they've him back. Girl, I'm not a Spidey person, no. I don't know. Um... And then this, uh, I can't remember, it was actually the story of when she came back and how she was thought to be innocent was the guy who was now high up in Marvel was an intern at the time and jokingly threw out a way she'd come back and the head of Marvel heard it and decided to use it as a storyline. So I thought that was kind of fun. So uh, so also that that same story when they were trying to come up, so um, later Jean does come back in the um, original X-Factor series and during that time when they were brainstorming, well, who's going to be the fifth member? We obviously need a female character. Um Dazzler was originally uh, going to be groomed to be that character because her uh, solo series was kind of going on at the time and they're like, oh, well, you know, we already have this character. Um, Marvel was just trying to figure out what to do with her after the whole, like, disco live action um, kind of uh, album that they were trying to create didn't happen. They're like, well, shit, what are we going to do with her? Um, so they were originally going to have her, and then, um, once again, someone came up with this whole idea of her coming back, and so like, oh, okay, well, now we can just, now we have Jean Grey, so fuck Dazzler. But she has the power of rave. And, like, now she comes back to life 
too, so whatever. Go back, go back. So what, what's the live action Dazzler album? Oh, so um, when Dazzler was first being uh, sort of created, they were, Marvel was kind of hoping to um, cash in on disco and sort of a, a live action tie-in where they were actually going to try to find an actress. And originally the character was supposed to be a Grace Jones type character. There's um, a couple of images of Dazzler in her same uh, costume from, from this arc, um, but black with uh, long braids. And so they were um, actually hoping to find an actress to play Dazzler in real life and have her release an album. So that way they could kind of have this cross marketing campaign and maybe spin it into some kind of TV series or a movie or something. Um, and it just kind of all fell through with the death of Disco. Which I, I can't say that I, I mourn too much. But however, <laughs> because of your love for Dazzler, that has inspired the soundtrack behind this episode. It is going to be all Disco. Yay! Uh, yay! Awesome! So, um, shout out to my friend Evan and his friend uh, Piotr. Uh, I'm Peter. I'm not sure. Ugh. He spells it like um, like Colossus does. The P I O T R. I don't really quite know how to pronounce that. But anyway, um, a few years ago, um, sorry, Andy, were you gonna chime in and tell me how to pronounce that? Yeah, yeah. As as a fluent Russian speaker, it would be Piotr. Oh. Thank you. My dad also speaks fluent Russian. Maybe you guys should have a conference call. But right now, I, I am buying the domain potter.com. Uh, I'll let you guess it's there. <laughs> Amazing. Um, anyway, um, my friend Evans, friend, has created this um, soundtrack called, and he calls it Dazzler the Movie, um, which is also a, a sort of a, a failed thing, too. Um, they were trying to... Anyway, whatever. We're, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um... And it's seriously so good. I don't know where he found these songs, but there is definitely a through line, even though there is no sort of connection to any of these songs. But Brian, I am going to suggest you find um, a song called Disco Clone uh, to put behind us, because that song is, first of all, jamming, and second of all, is complete 100% Dazzler. Um, Also, I suggest some Kylie Minogue, because amazing. (laughs) Thank you, Adam, for potter.com. Yeah, that, that's one thing that does kind of date this book a little bit, though, is the whole disco thing, is otherwise this could totally be any time, basically. And uh, the fact that they're like, oh, she's she's down with disco. It's like, well, this is pretty firmly somewhere between, like, 1977 and 1980. And, and, and that is true. I definitely think that... Uh, with Dazzler, if you were to say update this book, easily substituted for any sort of music genre, that I mean that is a problem with her is that as soon as as soon as you have her as some sort of musical figure, you immediately date her because it's like oh this is the music that was happening at the time. So, uh, yeah, poor Dazzler, she's definitely a product of her times. Yeah, but Disco will come back. It'll be fine. Oh, something else I was gonna say. Another another kind of um. Uh, um, another um, sort of interesting uh, cameo in this is Jamie Madrox, the multiple man at the very beginning because we're coming right off of um, the Proteus saga on New York Island and um, Jamie was there and he becomes then uh, Moira Taggart's um, like lab assistant for for a few years and like as, as I was reading I was like hey Jamie do you want to come join the X-Men? He's like uh no thanks I'm just gonna hang out here for a while so uh laters and he's still wearing that god awful green and yellow costume and you also get to see Wolverine reading Hustler magazine 
Uh, yeah, penthouse yeah. actually. Yeah, it's oh, it, the thing is they could have replaced it, but I mean I'm looking at it right now and it's it's um it's penthouse. Huh. Penthouse and he's putting it right back behind a Playboy too. So I'm like, <laughs> where are they? They're supposed to be at like a malt shop, and I guess this malt shop is yes. <laughs> <laughs> so like obviously there's a newsstand right outside the the malt shop that has easy access to soft porn. So. Well, well, no, they're in the malt shop too, because like when the Hellfire guys uh, crash into it, like they're inside the malt shop. Oh, that's even better. <laughs> and like the the owner's like, "Hey, bud, you can't you can't read this in here. It's not a library. Come for the ice cream, stay for the TNA." <laughs> P.S. He uh, the the character actually does called a library. Just FYI. <laughs> Oh yeah, he's penthouse. I always thought it was Hustler. Huh. Um, a, another kind of dated thing is when um, Kitty goes to the malt shop with Storm, and she's like, "Oh, Storm or or Aurora, I have black kids in my school too, but they don't have white hair and blue eyes." It's like, um, thanks, Kitty. <laughs> well, it, you know, <laughs> black <laughs> kids. <laughs> yeah, well, black kids only having appeared in white schools like five years earlier by order of the Supreme Court. So, I mean, I guess that is pretty progressive at the time. She's like, "Hey, hey, Aurora, I'm I'm down with you. I I, I listened to Beyonce's Lemonade. I know all about it." <laughs> She's so Jewish, though. Um. <laughs> so it like like later when um uh she has a fight with Stevie oh what's Stevie's last name the dance teacher Stevie Hunter and and she's like how would you like it if I called you an N word and I'm like ooh Kitty Pride I didn't know you were that down she <laughs> I'm working with this costume designer right now who uh, actually just got nominated for a Tony and he is a uh, fairly dramatic. And the show we're doing involves potentially having a black girl in a white wig. And uh, he threw a little temper tantrum. He's like, we are not doing fucking Halle Berry and fucking X-Men. And it kind of cracked me up. Like, it was amazing. First of all, if, if she needs white gr- or black girl and white wig uh, tips, go watch RuPaul's Drag Race. Bob the Drag Queen was giving me all the storm in the last episode. Um, and that wig was one billion times better than any wig that Halle Berry wore in the X-Men movies. Dear Fox, if you were going to put Storm in another movie, well, aside from, um, what's her name? Uh, Alexandra Ship, is that her name? She looks good with the mohawk, but if you're going to do any any other kind of, like, big hair, long wigs, please go get that wig from Bob the Drag Queen. Thank you. Well, and, and Halle Berry was perfectly fine as Storm, so long as she didn't talk. Do you, Adam, do you know what happens to a toad when it's struck by lightning? Do I give a fuck? It, it croaks. <laughs> the, the only line that stayed in the movie that Joss Whedon wrote. Yep. You're welcome, America. Hey. Oh, I thought I thought he also said you're a dick. I thought. Oh, did he, did he write that and one the, too? Yeah, the, nice. the middle finger claw. <laughs> oh, but Andy, this is for you. Shame. You're welcome. Shame. <laughs> that was a terrible pun, and I deserve that shame. <laughs> I mean, like, I I just love everything about this. Like, when Jean's having her, like, weird, trippy flashbacks to, uh, I guess, what would that be, like, the 1700s or 1600s, and uh, she sees them all as um, as people of that time, and Aurora is her slave wearing a bandana. And I'm just like, oh, Jean. Oh, Jean. Well, I guess technically that'd be Mastermind, but... Yeah, it's, uh... There's some interesting... I will say this, Q. I gotta call a little bit of bullshit on you for something. Okay, uh, go ahead. You, 
when, when, when we talked about Ninja Turtles, you went off on the fact that they have to keep referring to each other in name. I was like, oh, hi, Donatello. Oh, hi, Nin-, you know, whoever, because you didn't know who the fuck they were. The whole first, like, chapter of this book is like, hi, I'm so-and-so of so-whatever, or it's like, oh, yes, when I'm not normally being so-and-so, we're this, so we have to, like, like, everyone is expositioning themselves. It's like, hi, I'm Brian, I host a podcast on whatever, but, like, it totally broke that rule, and I have to call a little bit of bullshit on you, because you love this book. So, the reason that that happened was because um, Chris Claremont did that a lot in his stories, especially when, like, a new kind of storyline was happening, because it was to help new readers. So, alright, I'll, like, come back a little bit on it for the Ninja Turtles one, but, in my defense, the Ninja Turtles, you literally cannot tell them apart on panel. So, whereas, at least in this, they do look the same, so they don't have to continually reference each other by name. Yeah, that... <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, but that that feels like a very like eighty like that was just Marvel Comics up through like the eighties and early nineties because that's how Stan Lee did it. You go back and read like the uh, every single issue of Spider Man on the first three pages, it's him explaining, I got bitten by a radioactive spider, and my Uncle Ben died, and I learned that with great power comes great responsibility, and it's like, you read these in trades now, and you're just like, oh, these first three pages are interminable every single time, and with the X-Men, there's so many more characters, and it's just like, I waste five pages every issue reintroducing every character and what's going on, and with little bubbles like, this happened last issue, and you're just like, oh, this is hella annoying. You know, I Especially wish, when you're reading it in trade. I wish Peter Parker would have warned us back then that he was going to turn emo in his third movie so we could skip it. <laughs> <laughs> but also, like, the, the thing now is the little first page, there's, like, the recap pages now, which I think started in the excuse me, mid to late 90s, which kind of helped some of that. Um, but, but also, since most people now read in trades, at least anyone that I know reads in trades, they, they kind of stop doing that but even um during the fraction years he always had like the little bubble and meet somebody saying what their name was usually what their powers were and then some like witty remark about them um but i mean yeah that really was just comics back then um because you know a lot of these characters weren't sort of the the um headliners that we think of them as today yeah x-men was i mean that it was so weird that like X-Men became a hit at the box office in 2000. It's like the fact that anybody knew who these characters were was like weird to me. Like it seriously, okay, I have a I have a great story about X-Men. Um I I came over to uh visit this girl who lived across the street from me and noticed she was watching X-Men on VHS and I'm like you know about the X-Men? She's like, oh yeah, I watch this movie like every two, three days. Uh, I married that girl um, because I was like, this is so weird that like someone else knows who the X-Men are. And I, I was just like so dumbfounded. Maybe that was just because it's like straight-laced Provo, Utah, and not that many people actually were into X-Men, but um it you know we live in a very different time now than than in the 80s well i think one of the reasons why the movie did take off was because all of us who were kids watching it as watching the cartoon we're now suddenly adults some of us were having kids of our own at that point in time um and 
so we kind of got to reintroduce a new generation. But I mean, I think the X Men have always been pretty popular. I, you know, everyone knew like Cyclops, Wolverine, all those kind of things. Um, I think the biggest switch, which again is for a different story, was with the advent of the MCU, starting with Iron Man, where you know Marvel Studios finally took all these B and C list characters and made them A list because you know before this and you know and the X Men were their most popular X Men I'd say and Spider Man always were their most popular comics. So you know it, it's 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 flipped now. I mean Spider Man's so popular, but obviously uh, with. Marvel not owning the rights to the movies for the X-Men, they've kind of pushed them aside for the Inhumans. Um, but yeah, I've, I I wasn't surprised at all that X-Men took off and did as well as it did back when it, uh, Brian Singer made the movie. Well, it was a good movie, so... And Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart. Uh, I have problems with uh, the first one. I would say the, the second one was where it really, that for me, took off and became a really good movie. But Kurt Wagner! That Kurt of, Wagner. That's still one of my favorite uh, of all comic book movies. I just have you tried not being a mutant? I love Alan Cumming as as Nightcrawler. He's just amazing. I love Alan Cummings and everything actually. Yeah, yeah that's Sean true. Sean Ashmore's coming out scene as Iceman can now. Yeah, he actually wants to play the character as gay, which he is in the in the comics now uh, in future movies. So he can come out twice. I would love that. Let's do it. I say unless they bring back either Cloud from uh, and do the whole trans kind of thing that happens with Cloud, or they hook him up with uh, North Star. That's that, that that that's the only way that I would enjoy a gay Iceman. I just want to see Sean Ashmore with his shirt off kissing a dude. Uh, girl, it's called Google. Um, <laughs> and there's there's a really great picture of him where he's just wearing nothing but the Canadian flag quite amazing. Ooh. Damn, son. <laughs> You're welcome. Oh, no, wait, that's porn. Never mind. Okay, since Todd hasn't gotten a word in edgewise, since we have a lot of, uh, of uh, X-Men aficionados, uh, Todd, would you be more, because I think you probably were like me, I was more familiar with the X-Men from the comic, or from the cartoon than the comic book series. Is that the same with case with you? Yeah, I grew up watching the cartoon. I haven't Honestly, I've read a lot of comics, but I've really stayed away all in all from the Marvel DC in general. So, yeah, with the movie of being X-Men and whatnot, the first one made the most sense to me because I grew up watching that as the cartoon as much as anything else. So I really enjoyed it and all that. But even reading this Dark Phoenix saga, I enjoyed it, but I don't have nearly the same nostalgia from reading it when I was younger because I really just read it and this original thing for the first time this past week it was really good but it also feels really dated in many ways well and the one thing I mean for those of you guys who read it younger in life there is a strong sexual component and did, when you were younger when you read that did you pick up on it? I mean there's like they're having sex on top oh, of the mountaintops yeah. and there's, there's oh yeah I mean yeah it's <laughs> one of the things about comics is that there's definitely like the the sex aspect of it that makes you feel like you're a grown up reading it because you're like ooh there's a there's a whole sex scene on a mountain and, and, and even though nothing's ever shown or impl- even really implied it's all in your head yeah when they're up on the mountain and Jean Grey like switches her outfit and I'm just like oh hello (laughs) and then it takes like one of the reasons I hate Cyclops is it takes him like five minutes to be like huh she changed her clothes into street clothes and used her phoenix powers exposition it's like dude your girlfriend come on come on bro 
come on, just shut up. I hate to admit though, I am not oblivious though. I completely am not oblivious. It's okay, it makes you feel better. I didn't get that they had sex in Ghostbusters until like five years ago. Yeah. For the yeah. the Keymaster and the, and the Gatekeeper, so. Yeah, oh no, that, that was true. Yeah, like, but I think that's because I saw Ghostbusters like at so much younger of an age. Like I didn't get the whole like, Ghost was giving Dan Aykroyd um, uh, a BJ until like, yeah, like several years ago. That was. It, it could have been a handy game. We, we, that was never said for sure. Yeah, it makes me feel uncomfortable. Like in retrospect, the number of times I watched that with my dad, and like he probably knew what was going on, and I'm just sitting there like. Uh-huh. Oh, honey, I I went and saw Cruel Intentions with my dad. Like that's nothing. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, mouth like a Hoover. That's an actual line from the movie. Yeah, that must be the most awkward thing I think I've ever heard. <laughs> I say that to your mother. <laughs> oh, and then when the girls are like making out and there's like the spit between their lips, I'm like, oh, hey, dad. Hello, yeah. Selma Blair. <laughs> yeah, that was, that we'll go home and watch her kill vampires to feel better about ourselves. <laughs> right, right. The only thing I have to compete with that is I watched The 40 Year Old Virgin for the first time with my very Mormon mother, and that was a, a very awkward experience. Oh, the whole listing of sexual positions. I'm sitting there like trying not to laugh out loud because I'm like, I don't want my mom to know that I know what those jokes are. My mom took me to see Jerry Maguire. (laughs) Never stop fucking me. Yeah, that was that was fun. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. So now my mom wants to listen to my podcast. So, yay. Yeah, your mom likes a lot of our things. And I'm like, I love your mom. I love her support. I don't know if she needs to listen. I want to talk about awkward sexual stuff vis-a-vis this comic, too. So I I talked earlier about Astonishing X-Men. And, you know, the first time we're introduced to Kitty Pride here, she's up in her room, like, dealing with this migraine. And then she phases through the floor, which is my absolute favorite thing from Joss Whedon's uh, Astonishing (laughs) X-Men. Like, she and Colossus are getting it on. And and she phases through the floor and, like, falls down in front of a student completely naked and it's like <laughs> I know what just happened there that's, that's hilarious it's, it's that heightened emotion and, and physical awareness <laughs> the second only to um, there's another panel in Astonishing X-Men where um, uh, the danger room has taken over and taken physical form and he's like wheeling uh Charles Xavier around in his wheelchair and is like, I'm here to introduce you to Charles Xavier's greatest enemy, the stairs. I just thought it's so evil. When you mention Colossus having sex, all I can hear now is Deadpool going, Oh, your poor wife. <laughs> so yes, uh, but but to take it back to this comic, um, Chica is 13 and a half years old, and they say that over and over again. Colossus is like mid 20s. No, he, they they establish that he's like 18, 19, which is still too old for a 13 year old. Yeah. But he's he's like 18, 19. Okay, but yeah, still, that's a little Remember that's the, a little creepastic. Yeah. The rule is, well, and you take your age, you divide by two, and add seven. <laughs> <laughs> so that works. <laughs> Um, so the so the the, the story between um, Kitty and, and Colossus. So for whatever reason, uh, Claremont really found their sort of chemistry together uh, while writing them to be really compatible, and so uh, you know started this whole flirtatious thing. And 
in my opinion, this has never been stated by any, you know, by anyone, like, officially by Marvel, but I just think that he started Kitty out too young. Like, I really think that he meant to say that she was, like, 16, um, but I guess he just wanted to, because since the new mutants, I think, were already sort of talked about coming, you know, or were already in kind of the planning stages at this point, uh, so he wanted to have uh, someone who was sort of that in-between age. And, um, but I... I am a huge Kitty and Colossus shipper. Like that's like oh yeah, totally. my my yeah yeah my, my my like number one sort of like couple that should be together, and um, it, so it, it, that's what another reason why Astonishing was so was so good to me. In fact, the after the Phoenix Saga, the, saga, the um, two other comics that made me cry were when Ilyana, um, Colossus's sister, died of the legacy virus. Oh. And then and then Fatal Attractions where Kitty has to betray Peter to get him to like come back and uh, he has to have the surgery to like fix his brain or whatever. And um, you guys are terrible by the way on this uh, chat thing. And um, but uh, it, it is awkward but at the same time it's it, it was she was she always thought that it was uh like she i think she felt that it was like innocent and so then colossus had that sort of like awkward like oh is this a thing is it not a thing and then they introduced that weird healer person in secret wars to break them up and um anyway i i just love i just love kitty and colossus i think it's just the cutest most sweetest romance in in x-men history um but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it like even in her first introduction to him, she's like, oh, he looks pretty neat, too. And it's like, girl, we know what neat means. That's, uh, yeah, I, I, I really love them, too, as a couple. But I, for the weird, icky reasons, I, I definitely like them in their adult forms a little bit more. Um, but, like, Colossus, oh, I, I love Colossus. Like, I cried real tears when Colossus died in the the legacy virus uh, issues that was just like you killed off my favorite x-men like he survived the mutant massacre and was like stuck in a tube for three years um and same with nightcrawler and and kitty too and um it's like they survived all of this and now he died yeah it was a self-sacrificial thing but uh you know, I I love the two of them. They work really well together for some weird reason. I haven't figured out like why they work. Maybe they're both kind of misfits, but everyone in the X Men are kind of misfits. So I don't know, but I love them. Uh, but to also speak on more like weird sexual stuff. So there's also obviously the Hellfire Club, their crazy bondage gear, which for some reason means that the guys all get to wear like cravats and vests and you know all of the multiple layers of clothes and women get corsets and panties like I, I, don't, yeah. I don't know how that became a thing but it is yeah the women all wear lingerie that's it that's their powers <laughs> no I actually did research this week actually believe it or not because I was really bored at work um, the Hellfire Club actually comes from reference to the uh, the BBC TV show The Avengers because if you look it up on Wikipedia say it comes from The Avengers A Touch of Brimstone so you think oh it's the the actual comic book Avengers. No, it's actually from the uh, BBC TV show. Um, and uh, and in that, basically, the Hellfire Club is a group that is uh, they is very similar to um, this group. They're basically like a like an orgy group 
kind of thing. But that is, it's very famous for having the main character basically in S&M bondage gear the entire time. So, which I think pretty much implies why there is so much sexual content in this book in general, actually. Uh, I just have to say I love Diana Rigg. Um, like, she, she's my <laughs> favorite you would Bond love that girl. episode, sir. Yeah, I will, I will have to go and, and watch uh, old Avengers because... Well, if you look it up on YouTube, like, look up A Touch of Brimstone, uh, The Avengers on YouTube, you will just get her in, you know, basically a, a corset. And uh, I think at one point in time she gets whipped. Um, okay. <laughs> type, 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 type. <laughs> I don't know if I want to go that far, but just shout out to Diana Riggs still doing excellent acting work, not in her underwear. Uh, as Lady Tyrell in uh, Game of Thrones and being like the evilest bitch in the universe. I shout out to January Jones for no longer acting. <laughs> Ooh, burn. Or, or Finella Hughes, who was the original uh, Emma Frost in that terrible Generation X TV movie. <laughs> now, granted, she just wore like the corset top, but uh, she, she, she got to wear the uh, 90s uh, Generation X uniform with the pants connected to the corset top, but... Yeah. Um, a pantsuit? Yes, yes. She, she gets to have pants Why on. Why can't Hillary wear this? <laughs> she would definitely garner more votes. She really wants to Hillary in a corset top. <laughs> First of all, girl, anybody can look in the corset. I can cinch anybody up. It's. I think it makes people look pretty. Uh, but even, like, Jean, when she comes into the Hellfire Club, gets the deep-cut boob window dress, which is real sexy. Um, wow. Yeah, so like it's like everyone is it's like it's like we walk into the Hellfire Club, which also um, kind of I just literally thought of this the first time Psylocke in a um, in a flashback, the first time she goes to the Hellfire Club um, and Tessa sort of turns her away uh, from the Hellfire Club, she is also wearing a boob window black dress, which is so interesting, except instead of the more diamond shape that Jean Grey wears, she wears more of like an egg shape thing. First of all, hashtag X-Men fashion. Like, why do I remember these minute details? But it, I, just, I found that interesting as well. I just liked it when Wolverine showed up in his boob window dress. Oh, he Definitely. was rocking that, especially with all that hair. He has a lot of hair, like a lot of hair. <laughs> he is the ultimate bear in this uh, in this book. I I fully blame my lifelong uh, fascination with redheads with Jean Grey and uh, uh, many of these uh, burn drawings. Someone had sticky comics. <laughs> so even later, when the X Men are sort of getting prepared for the big showdown with the. Um, Imperial Guard, there's a whole nude scene with Wolverine getting out of the shower. Beast is also wow. nude getting out of the tub. Um, Colossus is in his tidy whities Storm, even though she's, you know, she's usually nude anyway around around this time. Uh, she at least puts on a robe because she's a classy lady. Um, but yeah, just lots of lots of nudity. Like, Come on, come on, uh, 80s comic books. Now explaining to me why this is your favorite. There's lots of nudity and sex and you know, all sorts of good stuff in it. Implied. Yeah. And, um, and Sebastian Shaw is shirtless throughout his thing. And also another shout out to my friend Evan, who is a huge Harry Leland fan. There's an introduction of Harry Leland, uh, which is... I don't know why he's his favorite, but he is. I like... Uh, we also introduced Donald Pierce, and I remember uh, a later iteration of Donald Pierce. Q, maybe you remember this too, when uh, 
after the X-Men have fled to Australia and all of the rest of them are dead except for Wolverine and he and Lady Deathstrike have him uh, nailed up to an X-shaped cross and he's, oh, his yeah. bottom half is now like a tank. <laughs> uh, no, that, that that's a different one of the... Um, oh, the one Reavers. of the Reavers. Oh, that yeah, wasn't that, Pierce. It was someone else. Okay. No, so so Pierce is still the leader of the Reavers, uh, but yeah, that guy. I think his name is Berserker or something. Something equally as eighties. <laughs> I, I bow before your encyclopedic X Men knowledge. So what? Uncanny X Men dot net through college. It's, so that website opened in I think of like two thousand one, two thousand, and I have seriously read their encyclopedia um, like amount of information from that, and it has just been stored into my brain. But uh, but yeah, um, Donald Pierce. So in when he's first introduced in this, he's kind of just like. A little bit of a yes man, like he really kind of doesn't really do anything. It's not until later when he separates himself kind of from the Hellfire Club and really goes crazy on his own and gets the Reavers, and the Reavers are just like, fuck this, we're just gonna kill a whole bunch of people. So, also, aside from um, him, but the rest of the Reavers are actually the dudes that Wolverine chops up um, in, in this story arc as well, which is how the Reavers get started. Yep, payback. <laughs> Yeah, t- talk about creating your own worst enemy there, Wolverine. What, uh, also, so kind of back to the whole, like, naked thing, it's uh, also when Emma Frost first captures the X-Men, the first thing they do is strip them down <laughs> to their to their underwear before they put them in cages, which is also just kind of weird. They put them in these go-go cages and hang them from the ceiling. Maybe Chris Claremont was friends with the guy who created Wonder Woman. Yeah, or he'd watch that uh, Touch of Brimstone episode one too many times. <laughs> Oh, well, the thing is that Chris Claremont definitely has a whole um, BDSM kind of undertone in a lot of his work. In fact, one of the um, last things he wrote for X-Men was, it was called X-Women, and it was this really weird, out of continuity, um, like, all, there was like the whole female cast, and it was like they were half naked all the time, and it was really awkward. I didn't even finish reading it. It was super awkward. Maybe we'll review that in a later later thing, but it definitely, like, uh, he has a thing with women in chains, uh, women having mind power over them. Um, it's definitely a recurring theme. Chris Claremont loves a good mind control story, uh, especially with female characters. Um, like it, it just the the character that he created in Rachel Gray, that she is nothing if not mind controlled, like eighty percent of the time. Um, so he that's definitely something that he likes to do. And also uh, just the sheer fact when Rachel was. Uh, so Rachel, for those listeners who may not know who she is, is um, Jean Grey and uh, Cyclops' son from an alternate timeline, because obviously, just since this story happened before then, we already know it's an alternate timeline because Jean Grey is already dead. Um, but uh, she was introduced as a hound of, uh, of the Days of Future Past storyline, and uh, she was controlled by Mojo for a while. Uh, she later was controlled by, oh, I can't remember the guy's name, but it's how she was reintroduced um, later in the Extreme X-Men uh, stories. Um, she, the Phoenix, obviously, is a major factor in, in her whole story. And so she's just always like this pawn, and for some reason, Chris Claremont just loves that shit. She needs to wrap some tinfoil around her head. <laughs> as, as one of the most formidable telepaths, quote unquote, uh, in the X-Men, she seems to get mind-controlled a whole awful lot. The irony of the whole thing. 
Uh, I guess speaking of the whole mind control thing, uh, there is kind of an argument that goes on in this about uh, actually trying to take it out of sexuality for a second, uh, out of uh, the argument for killing Jean or pro and against one of them is you know that she killed you know a entire species or planet. Um, the other one is is that you know at the end of the movie The Exorcist, when the demon is out, you don't necessarily say kill that little girl for you know killing people because you know she was being controlled by something else. And I'm kind of curious as to what your thoughts are on that argument as it plays out in this book. So as it plays out in this book, um, the phoenix isn't really exercised out. Charles Xavier just sort of puts blocks in her brain to sort of, quote, help. And so it's... Because at the time, we didn't know, which, you know, I'm trying not to, you know, get too far ahead in the story, but... Um, you know, little do we know that this actually isn't even Jean Grey in this story. It's actually a um, clone created by the Phoenix to sort of uh, emulate Jean Grey, because so, Jean Grey is actually at the bottom of the um, Jamaican Bay in a cocoon, healing. Um, but uh, so, like, there, there, she wasn't really ever exercised of of the sort of Phoenix power. Um, they thought that they were just sort of having it under control and so the Shi'ar Empire when they come down they're just like uh hey she's now a ticking time bomb and you know that's obviously not not what we're down for in fact the original ending of the story is that Jean Grey does live um but she's kind of like lobotomized she no longer has any of her powers and I can't remember how they sort of came about that conclusion of getting rid of her powers but um but yeah, there's there's even an uh, an opening image of the what what was supposed to be the opening image of the next issue where she's sort of sitting by a riverbank, um, and uh, you know later they did a what if story of what if Jean Grey had lived and it does open with that that same image and really um, that story plays out that the Phoenix still is within Jean Grey and it eventually comes out and so. I believe she had to sacrifice herself again. Um, anyway, so it's just kind of one of those, you know, does does history, you know, whatever kind of parallel timeline they're sort of going to, Jean Grey must die. In fact, later um, in the Exile storylines, which is also a great series if, uh, if uh, people ever want to explore. I love alternate realities kind of stuff, so Exiles is definitely uh, a great book, but in their second arc, um, they go to this to this alternate world where they're at the Battle of the, the Trial of Phoenix, and you find out that it actually is Jean Grey. That, that was the sort of difference in this storyline, that it actually is Jean Grey um, possessed by the Phoenix. It's not the sort of Phoenix clone. And the exile's job is to kill her. Like, they have to kill her in order to fix the timeline because that kind of what um, is shaking up the whole multiverse, which is sort of their job, is to fix all the timelines. And uh, so, once again, Jean Grey still has to die in this storyline. Like, she she has to. There's, there's no way to sort of get around this whole Dark Phoenix entity. To tie a little bit in from the... Um previous podcast with Preacher, I think um, when asked, Jesse Custer was asked, why don't you just force Tulip to have sex with you? And he says, that's the line I won't cross. Um, I think in this instance, Jean Grey and Jesse are at the same precipice. You had a dark phoenix that crossed the line and the sense of who Jean is just completely disappeared. And with the final line, she chose to die as a human and live as a god, but living as a god would be utterly alone. 
and you've got Jean going on choosing to die and be who she is and have that piece of humanity with her because um, that line was crossed and she had to die just to keep that going. I, I think that's a good point and I mean ultimately you have to just think that the the Phoenix Force is a malevolent force. Like the Shi'ar are more scared of the Phoenix than they are of Galactus. And that should tell you just how bad this is. And um, like, I, I think comparing it to Jesse Custer and Genesis is really apt because, I mean, at least with that, like Genesis had its own agenda, but really all Jesse could do was like force people to tell them to do terrible things to one another um, or like lay down their guns or whatever. But um, the Phoenix um, is going to like go blow a planet up, blow an entire solar system up uh, if she loses control. And um, and the first line of defense is always going to be the people that she loves the most, the X-Men. And she knows that she puts them in danger. So it's more important to sacrifice herself in order to save them. And see, I've never really thought of the Phoenix as a as an evil thing. I mean, it's it's basically life itself. It's creation. It's 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 what sparked the universe. Um, so I've always looked at it as, you know, not a bad thing, but just it's it's incredibly destructive because, in some sense, it doesn't know any better. And that's <clears throat> like Hugh, Hugh mentioned with the fact that this is actually a clone of, of, of Jean Grey. Was that the whole reason why the Phoenix? went the way it did was because it didn't understand human emotion and when like passion and anger and hate went through it uh, it didn't know how to react it didn't have the experience so that's what twisted it made it turn dark and made it do horrible things but i mean if you go back and you know put previous stuff um you know it's it, it's helped protect the Emicron crystal it's um you know, it's a, it's a guardian of the universe and can be used and can be there to, you know, save the galaxy if need be. But um, it, it's like a, it's like fire, pretty much. You know, the you know fire can be very, very useful and helpful. But at the same time, if it gets out of control, it can be one of the most destructive things known to man. I guess that's true. I think I'm also colored more by the like Avengers versus X-Men crossover from a few years ago where it was like almost like very clearly malevolent like it's coming towards the earth and it's probably going to destroy the earth and just like cutting through anything that stands in its way uh i think you're right it definitely gets shifted by human emotions but um i it's like it is it is like fire and fire um that has been put into like a very dry tinder ridden forest is going to be ultimately super destructive and that's kind of what humanity and mankind is and with avengers versus x-men i mean the whole reason why the phoenix force was returning to earth was to um join with hope summer who was the you know the quote-unquote mutant messiah and then iron man went and pissed it off by trying to blow it up so i think it was it was probably pretty angry when it took over um, all its human hosts, so I, I can't really blame it too much for uh, everything it did in Avengers versus X-Men, because we, we kind of fucked that one up. Stupid Tony Stark. He ruins everything. Team Cap! He really does. He ruins everything. Um, so, uh, so it's, it's just so interesting that... Um, so it's a lot of a lot of the times Phoenix is portrayed as this very malevolent force. But when, bring up um, Rachel Summers again. Um, 
during her tenure as a host of the Phoenix, um, originally what the Phoenix did was uh, sort of lay dormant in uh, Rachel's mind just to try to either cloud or heal her past because, uh, you know, she was such a traumatized person, which is why she had issues remembering um, for a long time about where it is that she actually came from. And uh, so it was trying to make up for all the wrongs that uh, the Phoenix felt as Jean Grey. And uh, I, I feel like it, it, they were trying to sort of make the Phoenix Force kind of a hero again, and then once again the Phoenix left, and then Tony Stark fucked it up. Leave it to Tony Stark to ruin reality. <laughs> Tony he Stark, really- this is why we can't have nice things. <laughs> he really is the worst. Um, just trying to think what what else I have to say about this book. We've gone on for quite a while about it. I mean, this might be a, a good place to kind of start wrapping it up. Do you guys want to start giving out uh, kind of your reviews and uh, thoughts on this? Uh, well, Q, we'll save you for last because I'm sure you will have the most to add to it. Uh, Todd, do you have uh, any final thoughts uh, on this? You know, reading it and everything, it was good. I hadn't read it as a recap of when I was younger, just a little bit of what I watched in the cartoons. It is surprising how um, dated in a period piece it feels with the setting and everything. You comment about Dazzler and Disco being so prevalent and the nice coloring going on. And though I did enjoy it, it just didn't... um, some of the imagery and the iconography of the Phoenix, even in these books, keep getting referenced to the past, and it's as good as anything that's come out. But I'm not sure I loved it. Really. I mean, there's a lot of things I've enjoyed more than this one. So, it was fine. But that's about it. You're lucky Q is so far away from you, because he would be cutting a bitch right now. Yeah, that's it. Okay. Uh, Adam, what are your thoughts? Um, well, so, like I said earlier, this is this is the book that got me back into comics. Um, I've got a damn Phoenix tattoo. So, I think we all kind of know where I, why I fall on this. Um, yeah, it is a period piece. It is, in a sense, very dated, because you can tell... You know when it was written and obviously the era um, at the same time though that's not always a bad thing I mean you, you go back and you watch some of your favorite movies from the 70s 80s or even you know go back and do classic ones from the 50s and 60s um, again very obvious where they're coming from very obvious the the setting and the time period uh, but it can be fun to go back and revisit those old things in fact some of the best movies come out nowadays are period pieces when they're done well and um, you know they're a lot of fun. Like the X Men movies. Yeah, like the, the like most the recent example. Ones. We just you know we did the '60s with First Class, '70s with uh, um, Days of Future Past, and then uh, '80s with Apocalypse, which I get to see on Monday. Suck it, Q. Uh, <laughs> but <Boo. laughs> no, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, you know, it's it's a wonderful book. It's a lot of fun. Uh, it was the first uh, graphic novel that showed me the comics could have emotion because, again, this was my introduction to kind of the more adult type comics. Um, so, yeah, I absolutely love it. If, even if you don't like this kind of X Men or you don't like that style of Chris Claremont's work, it's definitely one that everyone should read. Um, just to say that you, it's like you know Moby Dick or um, you know. Great expectations. It's a classic that everyone should read, even if it's not their cup well, of tea. Well, and jumping on that, I'll kind of give my two cents. I, I, I do agree that it is a classic, and as much as I kind of ripped on it for uh, having a lot of... And previously on this, I did... I mean, it, I find that actually kind of quaint as much as I'm going to give shit about... Uh, cue shit about it uh, repeating everything it said. I quite enjoyed it. Um, I did kind of read it because I'm like, okay, this is a classic, and we have to read it for this. 
but I I enjoyed it a lot more than I kind of anticipated on doing it. Um, and uh, it was surprisingly sexy for a, a comic book coming out uh, before I was actually born. Um, but I really enjoyed it. Um, and then uh, I guess we'll to finish off uh, reviews and thoughts, we'll go to the uh, two resident uh, X-Men experts. Uh, yeah. Andy, what are your thoughts? As I said, you know, I have a lot of love from the Phoenix Saga just from, from a kid. So it's hard for me to divorce that from all of this. But I will say... Picking up this collection again and reading them as this graphic novel, uh, it's important to remember that like the first half of this is all Hellfire Club, and then the second half is where we actually start getting into a lot of the Phoenix stuff. And you need that setup um, because it, it tells you what's going on. But uh, it reminds me that like there's basically two kinds of X-Men. There's Earthbound X-Men, and then there's X-Men in space. And uh, if you have a love for one more than the other, X-Men uh, you, in space. Exactly. You get, but you get both of them in this, and I, I think that's that's fun, and it's a it's a good mixture of the two. Um, packs an emotional gut punch, uh, and I I just I think it's a, a classic despite uh, some of that that period dating both in the in the storytelling and the um uh and the disco but uh, the the thing i keep coming back to is uh burns artwork i'm not really an art guy i'm more of a story guy normally but um when he's drawing those phoenix drawings there's just it's just so cool it's so it's just awesome looking and uh I, I love it, and uh, I, I, one of the reasons I went out and bought this was because I'm like, I don't own a copy of this, and my kids are getting to the age where they're going to need to read this soon. I, I think it's just one of those essential pieces, and uh, look forward to the day when I can pass that along to them. Sexiness and all. You're a cooler dad than I you know, would ever probably be because I'm overly protective. Uh, Q. <laughs> What are your thoughts? Um, well, I mean, I'm kind of in the same boat as um, Adam and Andy. I mean, this is sort of, you know, once again, pinnacle, crowning, however you want to say it, um, like X-Men story. Like, if you want sort of, I mean, obviously there's like the collections called Essential X-Men, but really all you all you need to read is this. Um it also has, which I had talked about previously when we were doing Civil War, it has the sort of Cliff Notes thing, which I kind of miss in comic books, where it's like, hey, this happened last issue, this happened, um, you know, four issues ago, during that time that guy stopped by the X, X Mansion. Um, just because as, a, as either a new reader or someone who, especially these days in all of the crossovers that happen so much, it, it, it's what helped me then do my research and find out, oh, well, wh- what are they talking about? Let me go ahead and, you know, go, you know, further back and find out what this whole story was. And when they mentioned Proteus, I'm like, oh, I don't know that story. I haven't read that story. Maybe, you know, let me find out what that is. And it obviously had, you know, Havoc and Polaris in it, who, who I also um, really like, you know, oh, let me find out about that. Um, but I mean, like this... You know, everyone always says that, you know, the the first X-Men death was Thunderbird. But, I mean, honestly, no one fucking cares about Thunderbird. Sorry, Thunderbird. Nobody cares. As as uh, Kiala Settle sings in the 
great Seth Rudetsky's uh, video. Nobody cares! Nobody cares. Nobody cares! Exactly. Nobody cares about Thunderbird. But Jean Grey, the first female X-Man, the, uh, you know, love of Cyclops' life, uh, also of Wolverine's, um, obviously, and, um, you know, like, everyone's sort of favorite go-to gal, as far as um, everything X-Universe concerned, dies. It she certainly is mine. Yeah, I, I mean, she she dies, and, you know, once again, at the time, you know, and, you know, now we all have our convoluted storylines and timelines and all of that kind of stuff, but, um, you know, this, this definitely was, like, super emotional, um, I mean, it. Cyclops leaves the X-Men and goes on this whole soul-searching thing for a long time. And even though Jean Grey was believed dead previously, um, and this whole Antarctica storyline that, that happened uh, a while ago, you, it's like the next issue you find out that she really didn't die, so it's not like it's like something like this where it took years for them to figure out how to bring her back. It was something that was already pre-planned. Um, like, it's... It's sort of devastating. Like, uh, once again, like, I, I unfortunately didn't, uh, you know, I already had, well, I started reading comic books when Excalibur was already a thing, so, you know, I already knew uh, Jean Grey was already back, she was already with X-Factor, like, they were reuniting with the X-Men at the time. Um, so, like, uh, you know, I already knew there was this whole other thing, but still going back, like, it's still, it's still devastating. It's still such a, a huge benchmark in the X-Men, uh, sort of things. And, and as, uh, Andy was talking about, you know, there's the two kinds of X-Men. There's, you know, the on, on Earth, you know, just fighting other mutants. And then there's the, there's the sort of space odysseys that they that they go on, and you get all of that in this one story, and it just sort of connects all of those universes. You know, another thing that um, is brought up in this book that we kind of hadn't talked about before was uh, this is sort of the start of Project Wide Awake, which is the whole Sentinels program that um, the government is is doing, which leads us then into the Days of Future Past storyline. Um, yeah, we just get little hints of that with a conversation between Sebastian Shaw and uh, Robert Kelly, who both play uh, roles in, in that. Um, just lots, lots and lots of X-Men history in the story. On its own, standing the test of time, yes, it definitely feels dated. But like, this is where, this is the benchmark, this is where everything harkens back to. And that's all I'll say about well, that. Well, it's a good first X-Men book, because I'm sure we will do more X-Men in the future. Uh, there's a few books that I've been a big fan of, uh, including some of the, the Wolverine stuff that's come out in the last few years, but uh, it was kind of nice to hit uh, some of the original OG stuff. Uh, does anybody have any recommendations for uh, this week coming up? I'll go see Cap Civil War uh, repeatedly over and over and over and over and over again. Absolutely. Just hashtag helicopter. I'm like, oh my god. Oh my gosh, the helicopter scene. Oh my god. I seriously think my wife is going to divorce me after seeing that. <laughs> Dude, like... it, was, it was so bad in my theater, I had to swim down the aisles to get out. <laughs> Girl, did you flood your basement? Did you get a shot back? back? Team Pollock, we'll just say that. <laughs> Um, but also, uh, like, apparently Chris Evans really wanted to do that stunt himself, and so that is really him pulling a helicopter back onto a platform, and it is amazing. I really wish, like, his shirt would have just, like, ripped off just from the sheer force, but, you know, I touched can't it. have everything. He wanted to do it shirtless. Chris Evans, in an interview, was like, uh, he's like, no, I really think he should be shirtless. 
And they're like, uh, I don't think that works, Chris. And he's no, like, it definitely does. Whoever said that was either was not a gay man or a woman because they were incorrect. I would like to thank the people at Marvel for doing that or else I, <laughs> I would find myself spouseless at this point if that had happened. <laughs> I'll make sure I don't take my wife to see X-Men or to see Civil War now. <laughs> oh, so good. So good. Uh, you got uh, any recommendations? I, I mean, I'll, I'll let you guys talk about it. I mean, I, I kind of brought up Dark Phoenix, so I'll, I'll take backseat to that. Um, I was thinking about reading um, Red Rover Charlie. It was a Homeward Bound post-zombie apocalypse type of a deal. Got a bunch of dogs and cats just trying to get from New York to California with everyone being crazy. I really enjoyed that trade. Well, that's uh, who wrote that again? I think that was Grant Morrison, I believe. I could be who wrong. Also, who did We Three? So apparently has a homeward bound thing going on. Yeah. Okay. Adam, any recommendations from you? Um, no, I think I think we we kind of hit on it was with Captain America, uh, and by the time this is out, uh, hopefully we'll all have uh, seen Apocalypse, and it's good. So I hope it's good. I really, really do. It better be good. Well, I mean, I've, I've got high hopes because, you know, Brian Singer knows what he's doing. Um, and Ish. Well, I, he's not, well, he's no Brett Ratner, but... <laughs> uh, Bitch. No, what I'm really excited, though, is that, you know, this is going to kind of supposedly end the kind of the old first class trilogy. Um, and the one thing that I was so, so excited for in X2 was watching Jean Grey slowly start turning into the Phoenix. And then that last scene when they're, you know, going over the lake and you see the fire burn underneath, like we freaked out. And then of course, Brett Ratner yeah. came in and took a big giant shit on everything for X-Men uh, X3. So I love the fact that Days of Future Past pretty much gave him the big middle finger by resetting the timeline. Um, and whether it happens or not, who knows, but I know Brian Singer has been wanting to do Dark Phoenix for a long time, um, and the rumor is that there will be some hints about it in Apocalypse, as far as Jean Grey discovering the extra power, uh, and that the next movie could very much involve that. I mean, again, it's all speculation, it's all rumor. Take that with a giant rock of salt, um, but it'll be pretty cool. That I, I don't see how they couldn't do a movie version coming up, um, especially to get the taste of X3 out of our mouths. That it would be the logical place to take it, and what all of the X-Men fans really want to see. Um, Just as an aside, I think given the success that Sony and Marvel's uh, relationship has had, if the X-Men franchise in any way falters right here, look to see Fox and Marvel make a deal. Or even if the movie does well, I think look to see Fox and Marvel make a deal where they can start crossing over characters and where Marvel can can give some of the help to the X franchise um, that that I think it it needs just a little bit. Like those movies are really fine and good, but they could use just a little more. See, my problem is that if they were to do that, they'd have to once again reboot all of the X Men again, and I'm honestly so tired of reboot movies. Um, just in the just in the sheer sense that they shared um, Quicksilver, that if they tried to cross over characters, to me it's like, well, then they're just gonna have to start from square one because then it would be like, oh, so that guy Quicksilver, like, yeah, he's dead over in this timeline. Is he alive over there? Because he is. No, I wonder, I wonder if they could do like DC and just be like, oh, well, that was this universe's Flash Jay Garrick and this is Wally West. And 
you know, they're they're all kind of different people, and they just bring the worlds together and say, "Oh yeah, that happened." Um, so like, like oh, there were just two different speedsters, and they both went by the name of Quicksilver. And both named Peter Maximoff. Yeah. Well, and and DC is stupid in that sense because they've got the the best Flash you could ever hope for in Grand Gustin, and the fact that they're not using him in the movie is retarded. Um, but I think that it'd be interesting to see how they can cross over because if you use the example of Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch, you know, they they kind of fell in that little Venn diagram of both studios owning the rights to those characters. One is X-Men, one is Avengers. Um, but that's why they, you know, these are like, there's two different versions of it. One's dead, one's alive. Um, but if they were to jointly share some of the characters and like a lot of crossovers, like we're going to get Tony Stark uh, in Spider-Man Homecoming, is that Marvel worked with Sony to find Tom Holland to be Spider-Man to exist in both movies. So I think if they were to work with with Fox and you know maybe include Cyclops, Wolverine, whatever in some of the Marvel movies and vice versa, um, they would probably work. They probably have to cast new actors, which again you know the reboot thing sucks. Um, but you wouldn't have the situation where there's two different versions of the same character. It would be the same character in both movies. I, I just think there's a huge opportunity to bring some of the X-Men into the Infinity War and to do a, a Fox-based Old Man Logan movie to send, uh, to send Hugh Jackman off, off into the sunset uh, and, and get, um, you know, get Hulk and get uh, some of the other Marvel characters in that. I, I think that would be a, a smart move for all of them. I just don't know if it's going to happen, though, because, you know, yeah, Sony, know Sony shit the bed with Spider-Man, which is why they, after the whole big leak and everything else, were desperate for help um, and made that deal with Marvel. And I think, you know, but again, that was something that even just six months before it happened, we were just sitting back and laughing that, oh, yeah, that will never happen. They'll never play nice. Um, so while Fox definitely isn't in the dire straits with their characters that uh, Sony was, uh, you know, I don't know if they're actually looking for the help that Sony was in that situation. Yeah, I'm just with the both the movies are going to be going head to head against each other fairly quickly, and if Cap dominates, and like if if in its second week uh, the box office goes Cap Jungle Book X Men, then I think Fox will be like, whoa, um, we maybe need to set the, set some things. Yeah, well, I, I don't think that's going to happen because that's why X Men moved back a week, so they they've got two weeks of Cap to burn out. Um, but I mean, if by some chance it did, that would be insane. But I don't, I don't see how this can't be successful unless you know ends up being really, really horrible. Which the only thing I'm kind of scared about is you know with Days of Future Past, they did a huge event for it, they did a public screening. Um, it's really, really rare that a big release like this is a critics-only screening. The only time it, and it's because um, the only time that's happened is two, two different things. One. The movie's horrible, they don't want anyone to see it. Or two, there's some really, really big spoiler in it that they don't want anyone to know about until the movie comes out. So I'm really hoping it's the latter. Um, and that there's some really big, huge reveal or something crazy happens that just changes everything and will blow your mind. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm putting my faith in that it's, it's option two, but we'll see. Maybe we need to do an addendum to this episode, Adam. Or we should just tell everyone to go and listen to Bored as Hell, where we talk about X-Men um, 
there, but. Well, the uh, cool thing is actually, cause you know, we, we do these kind of in advance and if I'm doing the math right, this should come out the same day that we review Bordis, uh, X-Men for Bordis Hell. So hopefully they'll coincide and you can kind of go back and forth and. Crossover. Crossover. So uh, I was just thinking of um, some recommendations and something I don't know a whole lot about is Doctor Strange and that movie is coming out um, this fall so maybe we want to try to look into some kind of Doctor Strange um, thing and also there's some new um, comic books coming out about um, Princess Leia and the whole uh, in between what happens between Return of the Jedi and Force Awakens um, which could also be kind of interesting. Yeah, and from what I've heard, actually, since the end of Secret Wars, uh, Doctor Strange is one of the best written comics out there right now. It's one I've been trying to get into. Um, actually, I didn't need to hit a Dr. Volts and put it in my hold. Maya, put it in my hold. Uh, but no, I've heard nothing but good things about it, uh, and that is one of the best books out there. So we've got Doctor Strange coming up in a couple months, so now would be a good time to kind of see what he's all about. Because I can honestly tell you, the only time I've ever read anything with Doctor Strange, uh, which actually has a cameo in the Dark Phoenix saga, uh, was... Secret By the Wars hoary hosts of Haga. Yeah. I've never uh, read anything for Doctor Strange, so I. I, I mean, me either. The, the only thing I know, uh, the first thing I remember him from is the Infinity Gauntlet um, crossover, which was another big thing uh, back in like I think it's like '92. Oh yeah, um, I read him in that. Yeah, I did. I did yeah. know that. But. So, so I mean, but I only know him as oh hey, we have this huge thing going on. We better call Doctor Strange. So like that's all I ever know him yeah, as. I, I know him as as from the Infinity Gauntlet, from the cameo in this. And the fact that Butterscotch Cum Bucket is playing him in the movie. There's a uh, there's an animated Doctor Strange film that uh, used to be on Netflix. I think it's still on Netflix. Uh, it's a pretty good primer for people who want a brief introduction to who he is and, and his origin story. And it was pretty good. And that'll do it for this week's episode of the Funny Books and Firewater podcast. Once again, if you like what you hear, please contact us at Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, um, or our website. There's a contact tab. We have some drink recipes on our blog. Uh, we have random musings on our blog. And uh, like us on iTunes. Um, tell a friend, tell a neighbor, tell a coworker, uh, tell your dog if they have internet access and a uh, account to a podcast streaming service. We will be back next week with a favorite of mine. We are going to be reading the uh, comic book Chew. Uh, this is one of the first books I gave to my wife when uh, we first started dating, and uh, she may in fact join us. So we will not be a complete sausage fest next week. Here's hoping. Yeah, until then, enjoy your week, and please support your local comic shop, and don't forget to tip your bartender.